just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Pianist Maria Greenberg was one of the great musical artists of the 20th century. She was the first woman and the first Russian to record all of the Beethoven piano sonatas, and she did so magnificently. Yet today, she's almost forgotten, and during her lifetime, she was almost forgotten. Why? Basically, the problem was that she was a Soviet Jew, and not one of those Jews on whom the Russian authorities smiled. I wrote a column about Maria Greenberg in the Spectator's Arts pages a couple of weeks ago, but I was interested to find out more about Jewish musicians in the Soviet Union and their relationship to a spiritual tradition that was controlled, suppressed and infiltrated by the authorities. I'm joined by the Israeli pianist Ariel Lanyi to discuss this extraordinary woman and what she represented. Ariel, it was you who prompted me to write that column because I was telling you that I'd heard Greenberg's Beethoven piano sonatas and was bowled over by them and mystified by their obscurity. And you said, well, there's a story there. So I wonder if you could tell us how and why her legacy was suppressed. I think that a big part of the reason that we don't know so much about her and that so many of these recordings are not widely listened to is that a lot of material of hers was basically pushed under the rug in typical Soviet fashion. So whenever they blacklisted somebody, they also tried to destroy whatever this person would have left behind, as they did to quite a few composers and other artists. And they just didn't want people to hear her work. Well, why was that? We do know that Maria Greenberg's father and husband were executed by Stalin as enemies of the people. But Stalin died in 1953 and that shadow lingered until she died in 1978. There's one story that might explain it. Maria's father was called Israel. That was his first name. And so her patronymic, her middle name was Israelovna. And in 1967, at a time when the Russian media talked of nothing but aggressive Israel and Israeli aggression, always the same adjective, she took to introducing herself as Maria Aggressorovna, which was a joke, but really there's no such thing as a safe joke in the Soviet Union. We know that after the 67 war, her support for Israel, or her alleged support for Israel, cost her popularity in the Soviet Union and was likely to actually be the reason that she was only allowed to travel once or twice outside of the USSR, only to Amsterdam, where she was immediately very popular and uh, and I think she was even made into sort of a hero in, in Amsterdam. But nowhere else was she allowed to play, not in the UK, not in the US, not in Germany. Her playing was basically confined to the USSR, where she was also very much suffering under repression. How would that be expressed? 
Was it the venues she could play at? It was not only the venues she could play at, it was also the fact that after she died, the institute which she was affiliated with, the Gnesen Institute, was either not allowed to or hardly allowed to hold any event celebrating her life and work. Which is outrageous when you consider the extraordinary quality of Maria Greenberg's deliberately forgotten recorded legacy. Here's a tiny illustration. The first few bars of Grieg's Holberg Suite, as he originally wrote it for piano, listen to the surging power of her right hand as it moves up the keyboard, and then the left hand crosses over into the treble and answers it. It's so touching, but not prettified as it is in the hands of other pianists. Now, it's not true that the Soviet Union totally suppressed everything Maria Greenberg produced. For example, it was the state label Melodia that brought out her complete set of Beethoven sonatas. She wasn't just the first woman anywhere to record all 32 of them, but the first Russian man or woman. Yet, when the LPs appeared in 1970, the Soviet press wrote not a word about this historic musical event. This has to be connected to the fact that Greenberg wasn't just Russian. Actually, she came from Odessa, like so many great musicians, but that, that counted as Russia, but also Jewish. The Soviet Union didn't purge Jews from musical life as the Nazis did. Ariel Lani, am I right in saying that instead the Soviet Union played a sort of sadistic cat-and-mouse game with Jewish musicians, sometimes celebrating them abroad, but persecuting them at home. The Soviet authorities used Jewish musicians in order to show the world that, in fact, they were tolerant of people of all backgrounds. And so whenever they used to send artists abroad from the USSR, they often chose Jewish artists. And apparently, even when they used to choose non-Jewish artists, they would sometimes write that they are Jewish, especially if their name was a German name like Richter who was, I think, in his first United States tour presented as a Soviet Jewish pianist, even though he wasn't. So the whole aspect of Jewishness was used by the authorities to show people in the West that they were tolerant of people of all backgrounds and that they didn't judge people based on who their ancestors were. But they did. And yet they did. Famously, Jews had in their passport written the word Jew, which could easily prevent people from being hired for any sort of work. It was this badge which they, they had to carry with them. What were the origins of this discrimination, do you think? 
The origins were that all forms of religious identification or curiosity about religion or with the religious realm was interpreted by the Soviets as a form of cultural and political dissent. And therefore, all religious education was purged and therefore had to be conducted in secret. So initially, after the revolution, they did let the older generation of religious people, doesn't matter whether they were Jewish or Christian, they let them practice their religion and they didn't particularly try to interfere. But their focus was on the younger generations. So the, the, the generations which were already born after the revolution had to be kept away from religion at all costs. So any identification with any religious background was interpreted as a sign of, of resistance, something which needed to be infiltrated and essentially put down and, and concealed. And that obviously left its mark on many areas in cultural life and, and discourse. I'm interested to hear you say infiltrated. One of the, I would say, defining features of the Moscow Patriarchate of the Russian Orthodox Church has been its degree of control by the Russian government. This is something that didn't begin with the Soviets and didn't end with them either. It's still going on. But were religious Jews also manipulated? Yes, so there was... And there still is a synagogue in Moscow, a big one, which is called, I think, the Choral Synagogue, where Jews could gather, and in fact they did, on holidays. But of course, the synagogue was completely infiltrated at every administrative level by the KGB. And so the rabbi was reporting to the KGB and the people who used to go there used to spy on the other congregants. And for, for a long time, it was, it was better not to be seen in these sorts of congregations. But clearly, though both were manipulated, infiltrated, compromised... You couldn't say that there was a level playing field for Christians and Jews in the Soviet Union. I don't need to tell you, Ariel, I mean, you have Russian-Jewish ancestry, but the roots of Russian and other Eastern European anti-Semitism ran, or run, very deep indeed. Soviet Jews were lucky, if that's the word, that their totalitarian regime, unlike that of Germany, wasn't founded on a purely racist ideology. Yet state ideology did play a part in the singling out of Jewish citizens for decades of sadistic harassment. If we look at the charges which were often brought against Jews, it was the issue of separationism and, and questions of, of loyalty. So Jews and many, many musicians too were accused of uh, what they called bourgeois Jewish nationalism. It was, it was convenient to accuse them of having a dual allegiance to a potentate a, or a perceived potentate other than the Soviet Union, even though that was obviously not true. And, and some Jews definitely did their best to show their loyalty to the Soviet Union, and that includes artists and musicians as well. And some of those artists and musicians were actually quite compromised, including Jewish ones. A couple of years ago, Norman Lebrecht wrote a piece in The Spectator revealing that the famous Soviet violinist Leonard Kogan was spying on his own brother-in-law, fellow Jewish musician, the pianist Emil Gillels, with whom he recorded many piano trios, went on many tours. That was absolute torment for Gillels, but it was the sort of thing that happened. 
Yes, and some were actually very, very loyal, but even the ones who wouldn't actively work for the KGB or spy on other, on other artists and musicians, they still tried to more or less toe the party line. Well, it's worth remembering that the Nazis infamously purged Jewish musicians from all their orchestras. But that wasn't an option for the Soviet Union, even if it wanted to, because nearly half all its orchestral musicians were Jewish, and an even greater proportion of soloists. The soloists were almost entirely Jewish. Oistrach, Kogan, Kagan, Gilels, uh, they, were, they were all Jewish. There were, there were non-Jewish soloists too, Richter being, uh, being the most famous one, and Rostropovich. This concentration of talent was obviously something that predated the Russian Revolution. Odessa, in Tsarist times, was the birthplace of many Jewish musicians who stayed and those who left. Emil Gilles, David Oistrach, Nathan Milstein, Shura Tchaikovsky, Benno Moisevich, Maria Greenberg, and another magnificent pianist, forgotten until very recently, Yasha Spivakovsky, though in his case it was probably choosing to live in Australia that did for his international career. Isaac Stern, the great American violinist, once said the US-Soviet cultural exchanges could be summed up in one sentence. They send us their Jews from Odessa, we send them our Jews from Odessa. It's an extraordinary flowering of talent. But there is the implication that in Russian society generally, being a musician was an acceptable profession for Jews who were excluded from politics, for example, and, as we've been saying, whose religious and ethnic identity was, for centuries, the target of general hostility at all levels of society. So, Ariel, do you think that Jewish immersion in secular musical culture became a sort of substitute for what couldn't be expressed openly? That's very likely, but all of that had to be kept secret and very subtle. So they couldn't be too open about it. And whenever they did, especially in composition, maybe connect to their Jewish roots, it had to be camouflaged as an expression of socialist realism and of writing so-called ethnic music. So Khachaturian would write Armenian ethnic music and some, you know, somebody else would write music which has Polish roots to it. And in that framework, Jewish elements were present. But they were very subtle and, and very concealed. Exactly. Because the Soviet Union was insistent that, alone of all the groups in that vast amalgamation of countries, Jews had no ethnic identity. Every other ethnic group in the USSR was expected to parade its musical traditions, but Jews did so at their peril. Yes, and they always did it in a way which was masked as something else. It even had to be renamed sometimes. So one example of that would be Weinberg's cycle of Jewish songs, which was published under the name of, of children's songs, even though they were set to texts by a Yiddish poet, of course translated into Russian, and they contained some very subtle Jewish elements, but even those had to be concealed as something else. And when you hear it? When you hear it... Now that one is aware that these are Jewish songs, you can hear in a couple of the songs elements of what is perceived as being typically Jewish harmonic scale. But even when you do hear that, you, 
usually get fleeting glimpses of it, which are immediately followed by uh, by material which you would expect to hear in pieces written around that time by Prokofiev or by Shostakovich. And in fact, both Prokofiev and Shostakovich used some Jewish elements in their music, very likely inspired by Weinberg. Its identity as a piece of Jewish music is very much undermined by the composer. Well, I'm sure many listeners won't be familiar with the music of Mitzislav or Moshe Weinberg. I certainly wasn't until recently. He was born in Poland in 1919, fled to the Soviet Union when war broke out, and in 1953 was arrested for this Jewish bourgeois nationalism, but saved by Stalin's death and lived in Moscow until he died in 1996. He wrote 22 symphonies, which aren't as good as Shostakovich's, and until recently he was often dismissed as a cheap imitation of the older composer. But his best music, mostly his chamber music, is very impressive. He had a gift for melody combined with what uh, Russell Platt in The New Yorker described as bizarre formal disruptions of dramatic use of counterpoint and endless slow movements with long, lovely lines that trace off into the horizon. Here's a little extract of the composer himself with the Borodin Quartet in his piano quintet, which is being performed more and more often these days. That's really haunting. I can't say whether there are traces of Jewish folk harmony in there. I I can hear them in other pieces of Weinberg's. But here's a question. Is Jewish spirituality, as opposed to Jewish folk heritage, captured in music as clearly as Christianity and the Christian relationship with God is represented in the Western musical tradition? That is a good question, and it's a very ambiguous question. So, with regards to Weinberg, it is also very ambiguous, but we can we can try to infer the answer to that very intriguing question from an interview he gave after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where he said, apparently, that he could see the bright light in dark circumstances. He was asked, what is the source of this perspective? And he said to himself at some point that God is everywhere and that since his first symphony, a sort of chorale has been wandering around with him. And if God is everywhere, then there is still something to say. 
That's a beautiful way of putting it. And I don't know, perhaps there's something about the religious experience of Jews as they were forcibly displaced time and again. God needed to be omnipresent because the Jews had no homeland in Europe, just places they were forced or permitted to live in, like Odessa, where they had permission to be musicians. But then came the Holocaust, which really challenged the notion of the omnipresence of God. As I understand it, Jewish composers outside the Soviet bloc were free to react musically to Auschwitz and other horrors. Schoenberg, in America, just after the war, wrote a survivor from Warsaw, a cantata in which Jews in a concentration camp sing the Hebrew prayer, Shema Yisrael. Remember that Schoenberg had returned to the Jewish faith, having earlier been a convert to Protestantism. But I think most Jewish composers felt what music could possibly represent the Holocaust. And in Russia, that carried the extra risk of annoying the authorities by drawing attention to your Jewishness. Weinberg did actually write an opera partly set in Auschwitz, but it wasn't heard until long after his death. I mentioned Schoenberg. In a way, it's an irony that the first post-Holocaust music was written by the inventor of systematic atonality, because, do you agree, musical modernism didn't lend itself to the expression of suffering? Not in the the sense people were used to, at least. Though often it does convey suffering, but it is not conveyed in the same way that a romantic piece of music would convey, much like in painting. So rather than being stated explicitly, things are alluded to. And one of the things that, that some Jewish composers did is they actually returned to this romantic point of view of portraying suffering more explicitly than than some modernist composers would have liked to do. And I think what some of these Jewish composers were looking for is a sense of candor, an expression of the Jewish experience. And candor, of course, was a luxury that no one in the Soviet Union could afford, but especially Jews. Though I think Maria Greenberg came pretty close to it when she made that joke about her name. Ariel, thank you very much. Let's finish with another little taste of an outstanding Jewish pianist, one who, like Maria Greenberg, isn't a household name. Not yet. It's my guest, Ariel Lanyi, who's only 21. And here he is playing the final page of Schubert's deceptively childlike, but also profoundly subtle and elusive piano sonata in D major, D850. (laughs) 